Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. And as usual, I'm going to encourage you to have your Bible open, reading along there with me. I think that you'll find that a great help this morning. Before we do, let's call on the Lord and let's pray together that he would bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Father, we as your people do lift up our voices in unison and we ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would bless the preaching of your word with spiritual power. We acknowledge, Father, that what we do this morning is only blessed if there is supernatural grace and power behind it. We pray, O God, that you would send the infinitely blessed Holy Spirit to accompany the word that he has inspired, that you would write it indelibly on our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand that we might turn and that we might flee to Christ and that we might run the race looking unto him who is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord Jesus, we are utterly dependent on you. And so help us. Help us as a father would help his children. Help us this morning, O God, both in the preaching, the hearing and keeping and believing of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 5, and there we read these words. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Well, in what is probably his most well-known sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis um, dealt with the issue of reward and what place reward plays in the life of a believer. And what Lewis does very strategically is he begins this sermon by talking about how everyone, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, everyone knows what it is to desire and everyone knows what it is to seek after reward. In the business world, the businessman is, is, is full of thoughts of, if I do this, will this be blessed? In the medical field, the, the doctors and the nurses are filled with the thoughts of, if I do this, what will be the outcome? What will be the reward of this? And Lewis, at the very beginning of the sermon, makes a really amazing statement, one that is somewhat timeless in church history, well-known statement. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Do you listen to that again? If we consider the rewards in the Gospels, the staggering rewards, it would seem that our Lord does not find our desires too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased." It's one of the most profound and well-known and well-loved statements of C.S. Lewis. And what Lewis is trying to do is he's trying to get his hearers then, and and as now you're hearing it, to consider what are your desires? What is the reward in front of you that drives your life and your actions? And I think 
that that's important because the Bible everywhere does that. The Bible everywhere says that all men are in a constant state of desiring reward. And the question is, are you desiring the greatest reward? Lewis will go on to say the reward is being with Christ. The greatest reward of anyone's life, anyone's short life, is to be with Christ, to see his glory, to be made heir of all things, to be given the, the praise of God, well done, good and faithful servant. And that that's the reward that should drive every action and thought of the believer. Now that's important because the writer of Hebrews does exactly the same thing. The writer of Hebrews constantly holds out for his readers that there is a greater reward. They were losing their homes. They were losing their possessions. Some of them were losing their lives. As it had been true in church history, in the old covenant, many had been persecuted for their faith. They had lost everything for Christ, and yet they had gained everything in Christ. They had set their hearts and minds on the reward. Now, to this point... The writer has not introduced the idea of what the reward is. He's entering in on it now as he gives us the second example from the Old Testament of a man who lived and walked by faith. And this man, as you'll see in verse 5, is Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, it's interesting. This man shows up in three books in the Bible in four verses. Four verses in the scriptures, three books of the Bible, and yet, like Melchizedek, he he becomes one of the most important biblical figures for you and for me to take careful consideration of. And what the writer does is he goes back as he's moved from Abel, now he moves to the next figure in church history that he sees in the Old Testament in redemptive history, and he he points, he looks down the genealogy of Genesis 5, and as he goes down and he sees all the names of all those people, and he died, and he died, and he died, he sees Enoch, and he was not. In a list of names of people who suffered the consequence of Adam's sin, the writer of Hebrews sees in a very short and even ambiguous and obscure verse the reality of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And what he sees in that is worlds. He sees worlds in the fact that Enoch was not and that he was not found. And notice as he unpacks this there in verse 5 that he tells us more about it. He says that he was taken because he he had this testimony that he pleased God. And, And Enoch becomes for us this extreme example of one who walked with God, that his life was a life of faith, that his life could only be characterized as one who walked with God. And the writer wants us to understand in the clearest and most simple way that the life of faith and a life of walking by faith is a life that will be rewarded with the resurrection of the body from the dead and that God strategically worked in Enoch's life to do that for you. We're going to see three things this morning. First is we're going to consider the walk of faith and then second, the reward of faith and then finally, the necessity of faith. Well, it is interesting that he moves from Abel to Enoch and you may, on the surface, on a prima facie reading, you may say, I don't understand, why, why does he move from Abel to Enoch? He could have gone from Abel to Noah, Abel to Abraham. Those are much more significant figures. And I think it's very interesting, actually. Last week, we said that Abel was a type of Christ in his sufferings. What we're told about Abel is not about a resurrection. We're not told that Abel went to glory and that he was glorified in the presence of God, though he was and though he's there now. 
But what we were told is that Abel had faith, and that faith resulted in him being murdered by his brother, and that he was a righteous sufferer, and that in that way he typified the Son of God. Abel brought the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better sacrifice. Abel was martyred for his faith in Jesus. Jesus was martyred by laying down his life for himself and for his people. And in that sense, Abel is a picture of the death of Jesus and Enoch of the resurrection of Jesus. Enoch of the resurrection of Jesus. We'll come back to that in a minute too. Only two people in the Bible that have never died physically, Enoch and Elijah. And the questions you have to ask are why? Now, I think it's important for us as we come to this and even as we consider the walk of of faith that we have to come to the text and we have to ask a series of questions. We have to ask questions. Why did he mention this? What does it mean that he walked by faith? What does it mean that he was commended by God? And I think when we do that, we realize that the answer to things is not always clearly on the surface, but it's down. It's down in the text of Scripture. And if we went back to Genesis 5, what we would realize is that Enoch stood out from others in his generation, that Enoch lived at a very difficult day and age to live. You know, we talk about uh, how difficult it is to live in a morally declining society and how, how difficult it's going to be for our kids. I promise you this, no one knew how difficult it was to be a believer more than those who lived before Noah. Between Adam and Noah, the world was filled with violence and idolatry and perversion, so much so that the Bible keeps the strongest phrase about the the depravity of man nestled away there in Genesis chapter 6, that every thought of man's heart was only evil continually from his youth. Every thought was only evil continually, that the world was filled with violence. And in the face of a, a, a culture as men multiplied on the earth and as men went and lived out their depravity, and we saw last week it didn't took, take long, did it? It didn't take long for man to do the most heinous thing. A, a brother murdered his brother for worshiping Jesus. The first descendants of Adam and Eve, one of them murdered his brother for worshiping Jesus. And it doesn't take long to imagine how full of wickedness and depravity and rebellion the world was in the days of Noah. And what we're told in the book of Jude, and I want to invite you to turn there. Second, the last book of the Bible, page 1027. Jude chapter, well, one chapter, verse 14, Jude 14. As Jude is telling us about false teachers in his day and wicked and perverse men that were enemies of the gospel. He says it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoke against him. And what we see is that Enoch, the same Enoch in Genesis 5, the same Enoch in Hebrews 11:5, is an Enoch who prophesied in the midst of a wicked generation about the Lord's second coming, the seventh from Adam, prophesying about the Lord's second coming, prophesying judgment on a world that hates God and rebels against God. And yet it begs the question, why wasn't Enoch wicked? Why wasn't Enoch wicked? 
What made him any different? Was he in himself more morally upright? Did he have a greater willpower? Was he smarter than the rest of the world? Did he try harder? Was he just a better person than them? And the biblical testimony everywhere is, by grace, Enoch found grace from the Lord. Enoch had faith. Notice Hebrews 11.5 again. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith. Everything in this book is driving us home to say, it is a believing and resting in Jesus Christ. It's a trusting him. It's a looking to God away from selfish purposes and endeavors to the God who has promised. Enoch was walking according to the promises of God. Enoch understood Genesis 3.15, that God would send a redeemer. He understood that he needed redemption. I think we can say very clearly this morning that when we talk about the walk of faith, Enoch understood that he was a sinner deserving the judgment of God, deserving, deserving eternal punishment, and he turned, he, he trusted God, he believed that God would be a, a redeemer, would send a redeemer, he cast himself on God, and he lived a life of faith. It was not that he was better, it was not that he was smarter, it was not that he kept himself somehow from the corruptions of the world, he was born just like everybody else with a sin nature. And I think when we read this, we have to say, like everybody else in Scripture, the walk of faith for Enoch began with God giving Enoch a new heart, enabling him to believe that Enoch trusted God, that he saw his need for a redeemer, and that he walked by faith in the promises of God, and that he cast himself on the mercy and grace of God. I think that's important because when we talk about the walk of faith, and it'd be very easy for us to look here in verse 5, where it says, he walked with God. I think it would be very easy for us. It says it twice in Genesis 5, he walked with God. It would be very easy for us to outline a very strict program of what it means to be a Christian. Very strict program. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and if you do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, it can be said you're walking with God, but that's not what the Bible does. It's not what the Bible does. The Bible says by faith, he walked with God. It almost gives you the sense that Enoch lived in the air of God's grace, that in the midst of a very difficult generation where he had everything against him, violence throughout the earth, wickedness and perversion throughout the earth, that he walked and lived breathing the air of God's grace. He lived, yes, committed in all those things that God would have wanted him committed in, but he lived as a whole man, lived in a rebellious generation. He lived walking in the light of God's mercy and grace for himself and then telling others about him. And that what you get is that here's a man, if we can say anything about anyone in the Bible, Here's a man who did not compartmentalize his profession of faith. Thomas Manton, the old Puritan, um, has so many great quotes in his sermons on Enoch. And one is he, he says that anyone can profess to be a believer in word, but in life and in practice they profess to be pagans. Anyone can profess to be a believer in word, 
but in life and in practice, they profess to be pagans. That could not be said of Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Enoch's life was a life of whole commitment and trust in God. And he believed what he had heard from God. He didn't have a Bible like we had. They had oral revelation from Adam and down. They didn't have all that you have. And yet what he had from God and what God revealed to him, he was a prophet. He received the word of God. He believed that and he lived according to it. I think that if there is anything that we need more today than almost ever is that people would get from Enoch that God calls all of us to live a life of faith. Let me say this. While Enoch was a preacher and he was a prophet and he called the world to repent of their wickedness and he pointed men to the second coming of Jesus and reminded them that there was a day of judgment and while he did all of that and probably cared deeply for the people that he lived around and wanting to see them turn from their wickedness, On another hand, Enoch is a very general example to you. And what God is saying is that if you profess faith, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is if you profess faith, he's writing to a church that professes faith in Jesus, it should be said of you that you walked with God. I used to, I don't know if this is a hokey confession, I used to really not enjoy, I'll choose my words carefully, singing certain old revival hymns. He walks with me, he talks with me, tells me of his love, some of the old uh, 20th century revival hymns, and yet there's a very real sense where the Bible says that a believer is someone who walks with God. He agrees with God. He thinks God's thoughts after him. He believes what God has revealed about himself. He believes the, 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 the comfortable things, and the difficult things. He loves what God loves. He hates what God hates. He seeks to have right thoughts of God. And as Amos tells us, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? There's a very real sense where what we can say about Enoch is that Enoch agreed with God. And people that don't walk a life of faith are people that essentially say, God, I do not agree with you. We'll come to that in a moment. And so Abel's, uh, Enoch's life was a, a walk of faith. Um, notice that the writer tells us that Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Secondly, Enoch received the reward of faith. Um, in the Genesis account, the writer sees this little phrase that says merely he was not. He was not. In a series of lists of people who lived and then died and then lived and died, He was not, and as I've told you already, that what God was doing was God was giving a singular example of the bodily resurrection in the second person descended from Adam in that genealogy. Interestingly, if you can follow this, Adam, who brought death on everyone, one day all of you will die. All of you are going to die because of Adam. Adam brought death on everybody. Adam was still alive in the days of Enoch. And what I think God was doing was God was giving a singular example that even though Adam brought death and misery and judgment to all men, God would bring the resurrection of the body from the dead. And what he's saying is that you ought to look back and say, wow, God's promises are true. The only reason he took Enoch was for you to say God's promises are true. It's worth it to walk by faith. It's worth it to deny myself. It's worth it 
not to love the world and the ways of the world. Now, let me say this. Enoch was not some monastic uh, recluse living up in a monastery. He had kids. He was a family man. I don't know if you noticed that in Genesis 5. He had a wife. He had children. He was a man who was engaged in the world in which he lives. Jude tells us that he was a man who proclaimed truth to others in his generation. And so... Again, we want to get rid of any wrong thoughts about what this means to be like Enoch. And yet, at the same time, we want to understand that there was something very special about Enoch and that Enoch so longed for glory. And I want you to listen very carefully. Enoch so longed for glory that God took him to glory bodily. Uh, William Still, I love this quote. He says, Enoch walked so close to so closely with God that God revealed to him almost more than it would have been right or good with on the earth. The Bible makes it plain that there is only so much we can stand to live with down here, and it may be that Enoch had such insight into the sacred mechanics of God's consummate purposes that he stood apart from men altogether, and that may have been one of the reasons why he was taken. Now, here's what I want you to hear. He lives so much out of this world that God essentially said to him, you better come up here, you better come where you belong, come home, man, don't stay down there any longer. I don't know how that hits you. That hit me hard. If that, if that hits you hard in a repulsive way, that's not a good thing. If that hits you hard in a longing way, that's a good sign. That we ought to be so dissatisfied with the world, the things in the world, the passing pleasures of the world, the depravity of the world, and so longing for glory that it could be said, as it was said of Enoch, that God is essentially saying, come up here, you belong here, come home. Turn to Isaiah 57 quickly. If you want me to prove this to you. Isaiah 57, 1, page 616. There Isaiah says, the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. There Isaiah very clearly tells us that there is a truth in which God takes godly men and women who walk by faith away from this world so they don't have to see anymore the misery and the burdens and the calamities and the evils of this world. And I don't know about you, but when you watch the news or you interact with maybe your unbelieving friends, your heart should be burdened by what this world that God has created is like. If your heart's not burdened by that, there's something perversely wrong with with your mind and heart and thinking. If you cannot look at this world and say that it is so warped and perverse, so under the sway of the evil one, so dishonoring to the God who made it, that you are not bothered by that, there is something perversely wrong with your thinking. And I think God wants you to look at the example of Enoch and say, look, there's hope. There's hope of glory. There's hope of consummation. There's hope of a bodily resurrection. Enoch was taken away from the wicked world. He was taken home to glory. And that's the whole point is that it's worth it to walk by faith. It's worth it to suffer the reproach of men. I can only imagine the reproach that Enoch received in such a grossly idolatrous culture as his, when, as Jude said, he proclaimed the second coming, the final judgment, he proclaimed, 
uh, judgment on the wickedness of this world. Now, let me say this just briefly. That doesn't mean that we don't long for the salvation of men and women in this world. Our hearts should equally long for the grace and mercy of God to come to everyone, no matter how perverse and wicked they are. And at the same time, to reject the perversion and the wickedness of this world. Paul says it's shameful to speak of the sexual immorality of the world. He says, rather, we ought to expose it. It's not a very popular thing in our day. It's not a very popular thing to talk about exposing sin. In fact, you often hear those two things pitted against each other, that we need to be gracious and loving, not condemning, or we get the other side, which is all condemnation and no grace and love. And I believe if we could have transported ourselves back into the history of the days of Enoch, you would have seen that Enoch, like Noah, being a preacher of righteousness, called men to turn to Jesus. Just like Jonah walking through Nineveh, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And that's a call for mercy and grace. It's a call for repentance. It's a call to come to Jesus and live. It's a call to turn from sin and wickedness. And you know what? This is the most uncomfortable thing in the world, and yet it's the most biblical thing in the world. That that's the reality of a life of faith. There's a reward, and yet at the same time, that reward is set against the backdrop of the fallenness and depravity of the world and how we're called to be in that world hoping for that reward. Notice, finally, the necessity of faith. And in these wonderful verses in verse 6, that you all know so well, I'm sure, without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek them. There was a sense where Enoch was pleasing to God, that God found Enoch pleasing because Enoch walked by faith, and God rejoices in his children when they trust him. God gives them the righteousness of his son, Jesus, and they become altogether pleasing to God, even though in ourselves we're not altogether pleasing. And yet, notice this, notice that what the writer is emphasizing and driving home, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Men can talk about God all day long. Men can talk about theology all day long. And at the end of the day, God says, without faith, Saving faith, it's impossible to please God. Not on God's part. The impossibility lies in our sinfulness and our depravity. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And notice as he calls us to examine whether we have this necessary faith, he says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, I don't think that what the writer is saying is a general sense of, oh, I believe God exists. He's definitely not saying that. We know that from James. Even the devils believe and tremble. So, as Jonathan Edwards said, plenty of people have devilish faith. Plenty of people have devilish faith. So that's not the faith he's talking about when he says you must believe that he exists. I I am convinced that he's talking about Yahweh, the covenant God of the Old Testament and New Testament, the triune God, and he's saying, just as Yahweh came to Moses, and when he revealed his name and Moses said, 
Who should I tell the children of Israel who sent me? Yahweh said, tell them I am that I am. In Hebrew, it's a very interesting structure. You should look this up. It's actually, I was what I was. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. He is the God that is. He is the God that exists. He is the everlasting God. He is the God from everlasting to everlasting. And what the writer of Hebrews says is the first thing required by God, if you are to walk by faith and be rewarded by faith, is that you believe that he exists, the God of Scripture, the true and living God, not a general God. We read this morning in the Psalms. I I know that this doesn't sound kind, and yet God's glory is on the line, not yours. Um, All the gods of the nations are idols, worthless idols. I had a friend this week tell me, as we talked about this subject and difficult subjects, he told me the story of a man who died who would often defend the truth very zealously to his friends and, and maybe wasn't always as patient in his speech with his friends, but was a strong defender of the truth of Scripture. And at his funeral, and this man had, had not had many friends in his life, um, and at his funeral, his brother stood up to talk, and his brother said, if anything can be said about my brother... It's better to dishonor men than to dishonor God. If anything can be said about my brother, he was a man that knew it's better to dishonor men than to dishonor God. I think when the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, he's saying, honor God, believe that he is, know what he's like, embrace him as he reveals himself in the scripture. When you come to him experientially, when we come in prayer, when we cast ourselves Before him, we are coming believing that he is God, that he alone is God. And notice what the writer says. And in case you think he's severe, what is he like? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I don't know that I could ever adequately this morning or at any other time in my life explain what it means that God, the infinite God, is a rewarder of his people. I sometimes meditate on that. Far from being a slave master, he is a rewarder of the one who comes to him. Comes in brokenness, the one who comes in repentance, the one who knows that they don't deserve any mercy and grace, the one that has nothing that they come to present before God, not a a track record of job success, not... Um, Sunday school teaching, not youth group ministry, not missions, not preaching, not teaching your children the Bible, none of that, but comes to God and knows, unworthy though I am, God, you have said you are a rewarder. Um, James, in his letter, warns against those that would say, let's go to such and such a city, buy, sell, trade, make a profit. Um, James says, you don't know what your life is. It's a vapor. And yet, there's something very interesting in that. What James is doing is showing what all men do. I want to bring this back to the beginning of the sermon. All men look at whatever they enter in on. And they say, is this going to be worth it? Let's go to this city, let's buy, let's sell, let's trade, let's make a profit. Is this going to be worth it? 
And what the writer of Hebrews is asking you to do is to say, if I enter in on this walk of faith, if I trust Jesus Christ, if I come to him and I cast myself on him, is it worth it? And what he says is, you bet it's worth it. It's worth it more than you could ever calculate. In fact, the only way he can tell you it's worth it is to tell you that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I'm going to close with two applications. I found this sermon very challenging personally because I asked myself, if I died tomorrow, would people, would my wife, would people that know me say, Nick was one who walked with God, like Enoch? I think you need to ask yourself that question. You need to say, if I die tomorrow, would it be remembered of me as it was of Enoch that I walked with God by faith. Is that the testimony I'm leaving? Is that the testimony I have before my spouse? Is it the testimony I'm leaving my children? Is it the testimony of my coworkers? Is it the testimony of members of this local congregation? People that know me well, could they say, he wa- I see his faults. I mean, Noah was a righteous man and he got drunk. He's not saying perfection. He's saying, is your life one in which, like Enoch, you are breathing the air of God, that you are walking in the air of God's grace, that all of your activities are so ordered that you are seeking to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing I would say to you is, what drives you? What drives you? I want to remind you of Lewis's words. When we look at the rewards promised in the Gospels, It seems that our Lord does not find our desires too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. He's not saying those things are in themselves sinful. He's saying we make those things ultimate. We are like half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. The writer of Hebrews would have you say, is my soul longing for infinite joy? Or am I finding satisfaction in things that ultimately can never satisfy me and are that, that are going to just pass away? The Bible is always doing that. Those are the two questions. Can you say that your life is marked by faith? Can you say that you are longing for the glories of heaven? If you can't, I want to remind you that it was the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross under the wrath of God, enduring to the end for those that he loved, taking your sin upon him that enables you to do that. It's not willpower. It's not effort. It's not motivation. It's a glimpse of the crucified Son of God. A glimpse of of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the only thing that will make us men and women like Enoch. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we know our own failures and weaknesses. We are painfully aware, Father, of our inadequacies, and yet, Lord, we would not dismiss them. We would not make light of them. We would not... um, 
turn away from the word of exhortation that we've heard this morning. We pray that you would give us grace that we might consider Enoch and the example of his walking by faith. We pray, Father, that you would make us to be men and women of whom it truly could be said that they walked with God. Lord, we pray that we would desire communion with you and that we would long to be with you and and to have Christ as our reward. We pray, Father, that you would stir up our minds and hearts and that you would do what only you can do and what you've purchased for us at the cross, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.